Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. I want to welcome our callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m., Eastern Time, where I will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. The topic for tonight's discussion is the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act of 1862. Well, I am so proud to share with all of you that I am a descendant of a homesteader. It was 115 years ago that my ancestor, Peter Clark, became a homesteader in Livingston Parish, Louisiana. You see, it was the oral history of my grandmother, Peter Clark's granddaughter, who served as the catalyst that pushed me to verify that her grandfather owned 159.33 acres of land. My grandmother lived to be almost 106 years old, and I discovered in my research that she actually lived on that homestead land with her grandfather. She was so proud when she spoke of the history of her family, and I felt compelled to honor the memory of my ancestor to find proof of land ownership. You can imagine what that feeling is like. I have taken every opportunity possible to share what I have learned about the Homestead Act with family members, friends, and other researchers. And I am so happy to have Mark Engler and Blake Bell on research at the National Archives and beyond tonight. They will provide the historical impact this Homestead Act has had on the United States and abroad. In addition, a big celebration is planned to mark the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act. Mark Engler is the superintendent of the Homestead National Monument of America of Beatrice, Nebraska. Yes, there is a Homestead National Monument of America. Blake Bell is the historian at the Homestead National Monument of America, and he has been there since February 2010. Let me give a warm welcome to Mark Engler and Blake Bell to research at the National Archives and beyond. Hello, Mark and Blake. Are you there? We're here, and uh, we're delighted to be with you here this evening, uh, Bernice. It's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful evening in Nebraska, and... Uh, we're looking forward to visiting with you this evening. Well, great. Well, I understand, and I've already said this, that next year will mark the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act of 1862. Why is this important for us to know and participate in this celebration? Historians have said that of all the laws, all the laws ever created by our nation's government, that the Homestead Act of 1862 
is probably one of the most significant pieces of legislation ever created. And, and, and I think that's a very, very powerful statement considering all the laws that uh, our, our nation has put on the books. And uh, through the Homestead Act, uh, it, it, through the Homestead Act, 270 million acres, that's roughly 10% of all the land in the United States was, was settled through this, this law. And uh, the law was, uh, was very inviting to uh, uh, minority groups. The law was very inviting to women. The law was uh, very inviting to, uh, uh, to um, uh, soldiers. Uh, it was really a law that uh, put our nation on, on uh, track for significant changes and uh, so it, it's important that we we look at the Homestead Law, and it's important that we reflect upon the law's uh, impacts, not only that it had upon our nation, and you know I touched upon some of those and how unique the law is, but the law had far-reaching impacts uh, in, in many, many ways, far-reaching impacts to immigration, uh, you did not have to be a citizen of our nation to uh, claim land under the Homestead Act, and uh, and and you have to you have to just think how how what kind of incentive that was where our nation was giving a uh, 160 acres of of land free to uh, to those people that were not even yet citizens of our nation, provided they would uh, move here and provided they would uh, build a home and they'd live on it and make improvements on that land. So it had a significant impact upon immigration. Uh, the law also had a significant impact upon agriculture. In fact, some historians say that uh, the, the Homestead Act is really at the backbone of our nation's great agricultural might. And of course, with that, then how it impacted our nation's industrial uh, uh, might and how it impacted the industrial the Industrial Revolution and continuing that. And in some places, the law also had uh, impact, uh, impacted, uh, to an impact on Native people, and uh, especially in some of those states uh, to the south of us, as well as uh, some of those states to the north of us. But uh, uh, the, the Homestead Act, it, you know, it, it was uh, a law that lasted for 123 years through uh, 23 different presidential administrations. And uh, so we believe because of all these things, uh, not only is it be because of its national impact, but because also, uh, like you, Bernice, and, and your family, each of the, the those people that are descendants of homesteaders, um, they also have their stories. They were also impacted by this law. So not only do we have all these, these far-reaching impacts, but we also have many, many millions, literally millions, of, of individuals and, and their life-changing experiences because of, of this law. And for that reason, for those reasons, we believe that uh, it's important for, uh, um, for, for, for us to uh, commemorate the Homestead Act of 1862. And uh, we hope that uh, during the commemorative years of, of the Homestead Act, which is next year, in 2012. We hope that uh, uh, people travel to Homestead National Monument of America. We hope that if they can't travel to Homestead National Monument of America, they'll reflect upon uh, how this law impacted, uh, impacted our nation and uh, perhaps even search out and look for their uh, family's history as it relates to, to the Homestead Act. Well, why don't you give us an idea of, first of all, which states uh, were considered homestead states, if you will? In all, there were 30 states. And uh, I think that uh, when people think of homesteading, they often think of uh, those states west of the Mississippi. And, uh, and uh, for the most part, that is all true with the exception of Texas. Texas was not a homesteading state. But, uh, uh, but uh, all those states west of the Mississippi were included. But also, uh, I think many people are surprised to learn that uh, many of the southern states were, uh, were part of the, the movement, such as Florida, 
such as uh, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, and, and of course, Louisiana. So, and, and then also uh, there are some states that uh, are, uh, are uh, east of the Mississippi as well, such as Michigan, Ohio. Um, while those were homesteading states, they were, were, I should say, small homesteading states from the standpoint of, of the land that was settled in those states through, through homesteading. For instance, here in Nebraska, 45% of, of Nebraska was settled through the Homestead Act, while uh, we can let you know in, in Louisiana, 9% of, of Louisiana was settled for, uh, for a grand total of 27 million acres. And uh, that's that's a ton of that's a ton of acres, and uh, so I hope that gives everybody uh, everybody an overview of of, uh, of the Homestead Act and the states that uh, participated. The last state uh, that that had land to distribute through the Homestead Act was at, actually Alaska. And when was that? In 1988 was the, the last patent was issued, and uh, the last homesteader in America, his name is, is Ken Deerdorf, and uh, Ken was a, uh, a Vietnam veteran, and, um, and uh, we went to his homestead site, and uh, it's, uh, it's, I guess it'd be safe to say it's, it's uh, I would say, it's on the Stony River in uh, in Alaska. Now, suppose we have individuals who who think perhaps their ancestors did own land. Just how would they go about finding that land? Hi, Bernice. This is Blake Bell, and um, we can talk about a couple different resources that individuals can follow. Um, but quick before we get to that, I want to talk about uh, to your listeners how many of them may possibly be homestead descendants, um, and I just want to put a couple numbers out there that are actually pretty staggering. Uh, Four million people attempted to claim land under the Homestead Act, with uh, approximately 1.6 million people actually obtaining their patent, and um, estimates have been done concerning how many descendants there are today of homesteaders. And the high end of that is around 93 million people are uh, out there today that are descendant of homesteaders. So that's about a third of our population walking around right now that's descendant of homesteaders. So um, the odds are that uh, you might have a pretty good shot at finding somebody that you are related to if you're homestead, if, or that you were related to that homesteaded. And there are a couple different ways that you could go about looking for homestead records. And one place I would recommend starting is at Homestead National Monument of America's website, and that is www.nps.gov backslash home. And on our very front page, you can go to uh, the heading Quick Links, and under that heading is Find Homestead Records. And once you go there, there's a complete resource guide to online sources that are currently available and the forms that you would need to fill out if you're going to request hard copies from the National Archives. And I mentioned the National Archives because that is where all of the Homestead land entry case files are currently located. Um, they estimate that there's over 30 million documents in that uh, collection there of Homestead records. And um, you're able to go and quickly fill out a form once you have some information that they're going to require, and you mail that form into the National Archives, and they will then provide you the land, a copy of the land entry case file, either digitally on a CD or a hard copy of it as paper. And um, one of the ways to find out whether your ancestor was a homesteader or not is simply to find out where they were living. And it can be as easy as just calling the county courthouse to find out if uh, the land that was given away in that area went to one of their descendants. And if it was, they can find out the legal land description, 
which then they could use that legal land description to fill out the National Archives Form 84, which is can be found at our website, and they can print it off. You mail that into the National Archives, and you can get your record that way. But there's also a couple other ways that you can go about it. Uh, currently, we are doing our land entry case file digitization project. Um, this is a collaborative effort between Homestead National Monument of America and the University of Nebraska, along with Bold3.com, the National Archives, and FamilySearch. Uh, they are a genealogical organization that is in the National Archives right now digitizing all of these land entry case files for us. Um, we are currently working in Nebraska right now. We finished a pilot project a little over a year ago to work out some of the kinks of that project. And now we are up and running at full speed, and we expect to be done with Nebraska's uh, homestead records here shortly, probably within the calendar year. And then after that, we are going to start moving out and going to some of these other 30 homesteading states and getting them up online where they can be found at fold3.com. And then the last place that I could recommend that people go would be to the Bureau of Land Management website. The Bureau of Land Management, um, they came from an organization called the uh, Government Land Office. Sorry about that. Uh, they came from the Government Land Office who actually administered the Homestead Act. And they compiled all of these records for us, and um, these are the records that now sit at the National Archives. But before they left each uh, Bureau of Land Management we or Bureau of Land Management site, they quick copied all of the patents that were issued. So um, they are a very good source to go to, and this is a very, very easy uh, website to navigate. And that uh, website is www.glorecords.blm.gov. And here you can just put in the state that you're looking for and type in a last name and first name, and you can search and find out if your descendant had homesteaded someplace. Um, for the most part, the site is complete for our eastern states, for all the states east of the Mississippi. Um, but to the western, for the western states, the site is probably in the neighborhood of about 70% complete. They uh, were not able to get all the western state uh, homestead patents digitized on there. So there are many different ways that you could go about finding these records, and I always, always tell people to start at our website, and they can get uh, a whole host of information about the different resources that are out there that they can find. And then, of course, you can always contact us directly, and we can help in any way that we possibly can. And I would just, this is Mark, and I'd just like to add that uh, when your listeners are researching through Fold 3, if they're doing it from home, there will be a fee. However, if you are in the monument, it would be free. If you're at any of one of the other partners within this, this uh, partnership that's working to get these records digitized, it would also be free. So if you go to a National Archives office, you would have free access there as well as any research center that's operated by, uh, by Family Search. So, so when you come to Homestead, you'll for sure, if you want to look at Homestead records, uh, take some time and get on the computers that we have set up in the lobby of the Homestead Heritage Center. And uh, you can go to work, and and all the the time that you spend researching your records will be uh, it'll all be free of charge. So, and, and you can do the same, like I said, at, at a National Archives office or or any research center operated by Family Search. Yes, this this is Bernice. One of the things that I want to say about the, the records at the National Archives is that you will be absolutely amazed at what you're reading when you go through those records because you will find in those records individuals who served as witnesses for your ancestors. You will find a description of the, the property. You will find a description of what they did to the property. Um, it, it just opens up a whole new 
uh, uh, just a whole new area of research for you when you're really trying to understand where your family lived and what they did. It's it's just something that's so valuable. So don't stop with the certificate number and the patent. You have to go beyond that and get the document to read the primary document to read exactly what what your ancestor is saying about themselves and about the community that they lived in. Bernice, can I quickly add to that? Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, when you order a land entry case file, you get so much more than the patent. The average case file contains about 15 pages of information. And as you mentioned, you can find out what did they do, what were their witnesses saying they did, but then you can also find out their marital status, their age, and their citizenship and naturalization records are contained in there if they were uh, if they immigrated to the United States and they had to become citizens in order to prove up their uh, claim. You just, it's just a wealth of information that uh, opens up so many doors and answers so many questions for a lot of the researchers out there. The, the folks at the National Archives, and they're, they're great individuals, uh, they have shared with us that of all the records they, they hold, and, and they literally hold hundreds of millions, that, uh, that this set of records is, is probably the second most richest group of records, second only to the pension records. So uh, the information, as you said, Bernice, is, is it's just they're just chocked full of information, chocked full of information that uh, uh, families would probably really like to uh, know about their ancestors. Um, one of the other things that I'd like to just mention about this project is is one of the challenges right now in working in the homestead records is is uh, there is no index to them other than uh, the legal land description. And uh, working with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, we will be indexing those records. And uh, so we hope down the, the road in a few years, Bernice, you'll be able to type in Clark, and uh, Peter Clark's uh, history will, will appear as you would have, as you'd find it on on the case file. So we're really excited about the work that uh, is going to be taking place as well at the as well at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. Well, that's wonderful. I just want to uh, find out if we have any any of those who are in the chat room. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call six four six two zero 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 four nine one and press one to speak to the host. Now, what are you planning on doing to celebrate this Homestead Act? Well, I'll start off, and then I'll let uh, Blake jump in and, and um, share some some things. But uh, I think one of the – we're excited about a number of things, and, and activities are going to be starting right away when uh, we start the new year. And uh, we're starting off with a uh, – Hollywood Film Festival, and uh, I think many people can recall different westerns that uh, included uh, homesteaders, such as the movie uh, Far and Away, and uh, so we'll be showing uh, that movie that that stars uh, uh, Tom Cruise, and and, uh, we'll also be uh, showing other films like that, like Shane. I think many people can uh, remember watching Shane and and uh, the tears that come to your eyes from from that. So uh, we'll be seeing that film. We'll be seeing Cherokee Strip. We'll be seeing uh, The Unforgiven, Tumbleweeds, Abilene Town, and American Tales. So uh, we'll, we'll be seeing watching these films really through January and February. We'll also be hosting a major national uh, symposium with the University of Nebraska Lincoln. And uh, that event will be taking place uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, March 28th and 30th, I believe. That's correct. And uh, we will have uh, speakers through uh, through uh, coming in from throughout the nation to participate. So if you really want to get involved with the, the scholarly side of this, uh, that would be an excellent place to do so. 
we'll not only be looking at uh, the Homestead Act when we uh, conduct this symposium, but we'll also be looking at uh, the Morrill Act uh, and also the Pacific Railway Act, as well as the establishment of uh, USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, uh, because uh, these other three laws, in addition to the Homestead Act, they were all signed into signed signed by President Lincoln um, just several weeks apart, and uh, in many ways these laws go hand in hand in in the development of our nation. So so this this symposium is going to be looking at uh, at at all four of these these laws as well as the Dakota conflict which took place up in uh, up in the Dakotas. One of the things that we're really excited about is when we're excited about all of it is is uh, um, the actual Homestead Act of 1862, the original document signed by uh, President Lincoln will be here at Homestead National Monument for a little over 30 days and we believe that uh, this will be the first time, the first time ever that the entire document, there are four pages to the document, will have uh, will be leaving Washington D.C. from the National Archives. And uh, the Homestead Act of 1862 will be on display here at Homestead National Monument of America, and that will be taking place April 25th through uh, May 28th. And um, in addition to that. Uh, there's going to be a, uh, a Chautauqua event, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar 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 with uh, Chautauquas, uh, but they were a way that uh, back in the early 1900s, a uh, way to uh, communicate new ideas and share political views, and and uh, they were really prominent uh, back on the eastern coast and, and in New York, and uh, and the Nebraska Humanities Council will be uh, putting together a, a Chautauqua. And this Chautauqua event, which is at, that takes place outdoors under a, uh, like a big top, big top tent, will be, uh, will be taking place here May 21st through May 25th. And the title of the Chautauqua will be Freeland 1862 and the Shaping of Modern America. And uh, somewhat like the symposium, this Chautauqua event will also be looking at some of these other these other laws that uh, Lincoln signed. Again, the Morrill Act, the Pacific Railway Act, um, of course, the Homestead Act, and the establishment of USDA. And of course, there'll also be um, representation uh, in the viewpoint shared from the American Indian perspective. Which is which is an important thing that uh, that is to that's included with this program. Um, there'll also be a fiddle festival. So Bernice, if you know how to play the fiddle, we <laughs> want to make sure that you bring your fiddle to Homestead National Monument, and that'll take place on the Saturday uh, Memorial Day weekend. Mm -hmm. And uh, also with that, John McCutcheon. John is a, a folk singer, and he'll be here performing. And uh, I, I didn't mention with, with all of these programs, they're all free. And uh, there is no cost to visit Homestead National Monument. So, so you won't have to worry about uh, paying admissions or paying an, an admittance or bring, having a park permit or anything like that because every, everything is free. Uh, we'll also, a key thing that we'll be uh, we'll be hosting is is our annual Homestead Days event. And this year it's extra special because it is the 150th. And uh, the Homestead event is a, is a, uh, is a community-wide event in our community. And uh, it includes a parade. There includes activities within Beatrice. Uh, activities here at the monument include historic farming demonstrations, arts and crafts such as spinning wool, dipping candles, uh, quilting. If, you like, if, you, if you're into quilting, it's a great place to be. Uh, we also have uh, steam-powered tractors that will be here, and, and they'll be blowing steam and blowing their whistle and, and uh, thrashing. They'll be doing thrashing demonstrations 
homesteading days is just just a, just a lot of fun. Um, one of the ways that uh, I can share with you, and that is that uh, we're looking for uh, representatives from each of the 30 homesteading states to join us, not only on May 20th, that's the day that uh, President Lincoln actually assigned the, the law, and it's this year it's on a Sunday, and that day we will be having a, a, a major event, a major program here that will involve uh, um, local and national leaders making presentations, but there will also be entertainment and, uh, and, and other fun things to do. But we're looking for uh, uh, representatives from each of the 30 homesteading states to, to join us, and uh, we're looking for a, a volunteer from each of those states to carry a, their state's flag in, in uh, the, the, the program and present the, their state flag, and we think that will be pretty cool. And as well, then, with Homestead Days, which is in June, we're also looking for, uh, for help from uh, uh, representatives from each of the 30 homesteading states to carry their state flag in, in the, the Homestead Days Parade. And uh, we're hoping that we will have a, uh, uh, in addition to that, with the parade, we're hoping that uh, we'll have a national, a state, and a local grand marshal. And each of our grand marshals, we're uh, anticipating that uh, they will have uh, some sort of tie to, to America's homesteading story. So we're really excited about the programs, and I'm sure I forgot some, Blake, and you can help me if I did. Well, um, he hit the big major events that we do have coming up. The one I would like to mention is once we kind of wrap all of these things up uh, in May and June, then try to catch our breath over the summer, and then in the end of summer with Labor Day, we're going to be doing a wonderful uh, family history weekend, and... Um, it's going to have living demonstration or living history demonstrations, and we are also going to invite um, the living home, some living homesteaders that are still with us uh, to come to the monument, and uh, they will be here to take question or answer questions and uh, just have a really really nice weekend and appreciate with the efforts and um, the the history that is the Homestead Act. Now, we have a question coming out of the uh, chat room, and the question is, can you speak to the connection between the Homestead Act and the Union Pacific Railroad right-of-ways and western expansion? Um, yeah, uh, they really go hand-in-hand, hand, honestly. The Homestead Act was passed in May of 1862, and the Pacific Railway Act was passed in July of 1862, and the Pacific Railway Act created the legislation necessary to authorize the Transcontinental Railroad. And um, the Union Pacific was on half of that, and they started out of Omaha, Nebraska, and they started building west uh, towards Sacramento, California. And then you had the Central Pacific uh, building east from Sacramento towards uh, Omaha. And in uh, 1869, they met at Promontory Point, Utah, and completed the first transcontinental railroad. And what this really did was it not only connected East Coast to West Coast, but it really connected the Midwest and the Great Plains to both coasts. So now they had the opportunity to, um, A, get where they were going faster, so uh, they could actually uh, be moved from one of, their, one of the eastern cities, or even if the, they were coming from overseas, they could get to uh, their land claim faster. But then whatever they were producing or whatever their needs were to uh, help them produce, they now had a, uh, a, a artery to get those things there. So the Pacific Railway Act, and uh, born out of that, the Union Pacific, uh, really created the conduit that allowed for these goods and services 
to be moved back and forth, but it also allowed for the people to be moved back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I would just like to add to that that uh, with the railroads, the railroad companies were played an instrumental part in, in uh, recruiting new citizens to our nation, and uh, many of these railroad companies uh, they actually sent uh, recruiters to to Europe and to other countries to actually go out and, and uh, find people that uh, they thought would make good homesteaders or anybody that would could they think could do it. They would actually encourage them to uh, uh, move to America and uh, to pursue the American dream through the Homestead Act and uh, land ownership. So, uh, you know, and, and I know that I've heard people say, well, that makes a lot of sense from the standpoint that uh, um, the railroad was looking for customers, and, and there's probably truth to that. But uh, in a way, these, these two laws go hand in hand. And I'd just like to add that then with the Morrill Act, uh, the Morrill Act uh, was the law that established uh, many, many of our uh, land-grant universities. I know in Nebraska it would be the University of, of Nebraska, and I think that uh, most, most states have land-grant colleges, and uh, you probably know those land-grant colleges in, in, uh, in, in, in your state. And uh, part of the, the work, part of the mission that those land-grant colleges had was to try to help these settlers with, uh, with improving their farming techniques and to improving their crops and to help them be successful in coming up with new technologies, coming up with new methods, coming up with, with new science that would ensure their success. And uh, so these things were, were, were happening as a result of the Morrill Act. So that's why those three, those three laws go go hand in hand in, in many, many ways. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back because there's some more questions that I, I have for you. Very good. to Mark Engler and Blake Bell, and I'm so happy to have them from the National Homestead Monument at uh, Beatrice, Nebraska. Okay, one of the questions uh, that I've, I've been asked several times is just how much money did a homesteader have to put up in order to even apply for the land? Well, uh, to just apply for the land... Um it really varied, but you had to file an uh, application, and in order to do that, you had to pay an application fee. And the initial upfront cost usually was in the neighborhood of about ten to twelve dollars, um, and that would file all of the paperwork and pay the land officer's wages to do all of that filing. And then after your five years was up, you would go back to the land office to actually um, prove up on your claim is what they called it, but that's where you would go back and testify and uh, they would ask you all the questions necessary to see if you had met the criteria. And once you had done that, then you would pay another six to eight dollars. So 
all told money out of your pocket in filing fees was about $18. Now, how many uh, individuals actually applied for the land, and then how many of them actually got the land? Um, estimated about 4 million people applied for the land. Um, and then we have about 1.6 million people actually obtaining their final patent from the government. And then I would say that uh, for the most part, the those people that uh, tried to homestead and, and were not successful, they they you know they they played other important roles in the development of, of our nation. And uh, while they may not have been successful as defined under the Homestead Act, uh, and, and I can touch upon that a little bit more here in a minute, but, but many of those people, when they were not successful on their homesteads, they moved into the communities, they moved into the small towns, and uh, they really ha helped shape the foundations of, of many of those communities in, uh, throughout these these homestead states, but many of the people that did not receive their their homestead patents, they were not successful because they were really not cut out to be farmers. And um, I, I think that uh, many people that, uh, that wanted to be homesteaders wanted to obtain land. They're really not ready to, to. They were not ready to be farmers, and they were had not been farmers previous. And and it's like with any trade, uh, if, if you're not familiar with it, it's a it's a whole new it's a whole new ball game. And uh, so there had to be a lot of experimenting. There had to be a tremendous amount of work. And uh, uh, and I think those people that, for instance, like were butchers. And they tried to be all of a sudden farmers. They they found that they had some some great challenges ahead of them, and and uh, they found that their skills would actually work better in 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 communities, in towns, in villages, in cities. So uh, uh, there was a lot of moving around, and it was every I think everybody tried to find their niche and their place, and in, in uh, helping. Uh, uh, I guess form our nation as as we we know it through the Homestead Act. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned that uh, immigrants could come to the United States and apply for land, but what about let's say free people of color going to a state to homestead? Did they have to show papers that they were free before they applied for land? Well, um, prior. Prior to 1866, the Homestead Act was passed in 1862 and uh, went into effect in 1863. And there was a three-year period where uh, even free people of color were not actually allowed to homestead. And it was because they were not allowed to become citizens. And the reason it's written into the Homestead Act, and it defers to the naturalization laws of the United States, it said that anybody who is a citizen or intends to become a citizen could apply. And with that, with knowing that, uh, free people of color from, let's say, the North were still not allowed to apply for land under the Homestead Act. Now. In 1866, with uh, the first uh, major Civil Rights Act passed, um, there was the the law was very clear that you could not discriminate uh, based upon color, and then regardless of uh, skin color, you were allowed to participate under the Homestead Act, and then um, when the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was not being, uh, I guess, upheld. Uh, they built a more firm foundation with our 14th Amendment of the United States in 1868, uh, which established the federal authority that said nobody could be discriminated against based upon their color. So, so there's a question really also. Six and beyond. But, okay. But I guess I'd just like to add that. When that took effect in 1866, the, the Homestead Act, 
the Homestead Act was was uh, was a law that was really quite unique from the standpoint that it was ahead of its time, and it was a law that uh, not only allowed uh, people of color, former slaves, but also the opportunity, but it also allowed uh, women before they even had the right to vote, the opportunity to own land, and uh, the, the, the and. and then from the immigration standpoint, too, it was a, a law that was very welcoming. And uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, with the immigration laws, immigration laws, as I understand it, also spelled out and identified the Homestead Act uh, as, as a tool or a law within our nation that uh, immigrants could use to, to move here and to obtain free land. Uh, so it was a, a very unique law, very a, a law that was very revolutionary for its time, and uh, it was a very inviting law. In fact, um, there are uh, communities in the Midwest, in the Great Plains, such as uh, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was uh, uh, a community that was uh, mostly settled by African Americans and and. Uh, in uh, many of the early settlers, like in Nicodemus, they participated in the Homestead Act. Mm-hmm. And Bernice, one last thought on that. Um, written into the Homestead Act, it says that each land office has the authority to administer the Homestead Act as they see fit. So there were cases where um, there were reported cases of discrimination based on color because they didn't supply paperwork or they didn't uh, have the necessary documents, but uh, that was not in the spirit of the Homestead Act as it was intended. Mm-hmm. Well, another question is what happened to that land once someone has been given the patent and they then are unable to pay the taxes. Does that land revert back to the federal government or to the state? If you were, if you were unable to pay your tax after you received the patent, then it was treated as personal property from there on out. And if you were unable to pay your taxes, um, then yeah, you would lose your land and it would revert back to the federal government. So, and not to the state. Not to the state. That's interesting. Okay. Now. I would like to also just touch upon something else here, Bernice. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know if you get much uh, news in Louisiana from from the Great Plains states, and and uh, what and what comes to mind that I'd like to just to share with you. Uh, I think it's quite an ironic thing, and and that is, you'd asked Blake here a few minutes ago about the the price of. Of, of land and what it would take to get 160 acres, and uh, Blake, that price you said was what, $16, basically, roughly 16 to $18 in filing fees. Right, 16 to $18, and and uh, that was for 160 acres, and I think that's quite ironic because today some of this land is some of the most valuable land in the world. And uh, and I think that's not only true for the Great Plains, but I think that's also true for many of the homesteading states with the land that was, was given away to people now is, is from from a monetary point of view, is, is very, very valuable. And uh, I can share with you, and I'm no expert on, on this by any means, but uh, I, I can share with you that uh, Farm prices associated with land, I've seen where they've been $2,000 an acre. I've seen where those prices have been close to $5,000 an acre. And I can see, and I can also share with you that some of these prices have sold, some of these acres have sold for over $10,000 an acre. And uh, and that's farmland. So Mm -hmm. I think it's quite, quite ironic that, uh, that, uh, you know, nearly 150 years ago, 140 years ago, our nation was giving this away uh, free, and today this land is some of the most valuable land um, in our nation. It is. It is most definitely. Now, do you have statistics on um, the number of women who acquired the land, the number of African Americans, Native Americans? Um, we have estimates. 
and that's the best uh, that we can do as far as numbers go. And that's just quite simply a lack of having access to those records that we talked about earlier. And uh, once we digitize them, and as Mark mentioned, have them indexed, well, hopefully one day we'll have that information right at our fingertips. But uh, the best estimate that I've heard as far as women homesteaders are concerned, uh, that about 150,000 women uh, successfully proved up on their land. Uh, African Americans, this one has been, uh, this one's been disputed a little bit, but I've heard it in the low figure of 100,000 and in the high figure of about 500,000. So that's quite a spread there. So um, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And I can't really say for sure. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, part of the problem, in, in, and we're asked all the time about, about numbers, and the, since the records are not indexed, there's, there's, there's really no way to do it except to just, spot check and to figure from that point of view. So we're really excited, not only from the genealogy standpoint of when we get these records digitized and indexed, but from a scholarly standpoint, we're supercharged up over that. And mm-hmm. in fact, um, again, our friends at the University of Nebraska, uh, former Vice Chancellor Rick Edwards, uh, he believes that once these records are digitized and once they're also indexed, that we should expect uh, uh, a whole new uh, interpretation of history as it relates to the settlement of the West. Much like what happened when the census records in the South were, were uh, uh, provided and, and, and issued, the same thing will happen, we expect, with the homestead records. Mm-hmm. And another well, big for, problem for researchers. with... Uh, the indexing and being able to get those numbers, it goes back to the inviting nature of the Homestead Act because it didn't ask for things like your race or it didn't ask for uh, – you had to provide your uh, citizenship or your gender, but outside of that, they didn't ask those kinds of questions that uh, we might anticipate they would have, especially considering the – the mid-19th, late-19th century. Well, we do have a question because you're mentioning the indexing. What is the projected time for indexing? Unfortunately, the whole project, uh, we're moving at a a very slow pace. And uh, while I say a very slow pace, it's just because there are 30 million records, and and right now we have... uh, two cameras that are set up, and these cameras are working daily with a team of two people on each camera. So it's going to take us, uh, we're estimating, 10 or more years to, uh, to, to digitize these records. And um, from an indexing standpoint, that will follow up right on the heels, we hope, of, of the, the, the digitizing project. And I know right now, while we have started the indexing with uh, with the folks at Fold 3, what we're doing at the University of Nebraska is even looking at it much, much finer. So we're going to be looking at some of the things that we've just been talking about, like uh, origin, we're going to be looking at uh, uh, race, and we're going to be looking at all those things so scholars can, can be writing about them. And, and we'll know how all these different groups played into the development of the West and and we'll be able to tell about uh, the, the, ch- the challenges with, like, climate. And uh, we'll be able to uh, look at other things yet to be, uh, yet to be explored. So, unfortunately, um, it's going to be some time yet before we, before we get the records completely digitized and indexed. But that mm-hmm. being said, Bernice, we are very optimistic that as uh, – this project moves forward and people get uh, more and more excited about it and as we move into other states, uh, we really feel that it will gain steam as the project grows. So uh, the, there is, a, as Mark mentioned, a, a long time frame uh, projection there, but we, uh, we do hope that it will gain steam. And I guess I would just like to say I think the more people that try to access the homestead records, mm-hmm. uh, 
better luck we're going to have at uh, moving the whole project along quicker. Absolutely. Well, what can what what can researchers do? What can genealogists? What can descendants do to really talk about the Homestead Act and get others to get excited and to to get those records and to start sharing what they know about their ancestors? I think it's important for people to to do exactly what you're saying, Bernice, and that is look for those homestead records, ask for those homestead records. I think it's also important for the scholars out there, for the for the few land offices that we have, I, I would hope that scholars would want to go and look into those land offices and start to studying them and start to share what they find and talk about what they find. And I think when they do that, I think it'll excite other scholars, and and um, I think it'll be a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're just just on the the tip of the iceberg here, and and I think there's just just a tremendous a tremendous amount of information that uh, people are going to be learning. Just like like when you were exploring uh, Peter Clark's uh, records, I think that's 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 really cool, and I think that's really neat, and. So I think the more people look to this, and I think a lot of people don't even know about case files, and mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of people just stumble up, stumble upon them, and I think the more people that know they're out there, and the more people that ask for them, I think it'll just uh, create more more interest, and we'll have more successes in moving the project forward. Mm-hmm. Now, where can we expect to see information come out about the 150th anniversary um, event? So, we're we going to see it in the newspaper and on television, or is it uh, just in Nebraska that it's being promoted? We would hope that uh, we, we've been working with uh, different media outlets, and we will make sure that we send our stuff to uh, Louisiana. And uh, but if you want to look at our website, we have under the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act a listing of our activities. And I would also just like to add, Bernice, that if 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 you know of other activities taking place, we'd be happy to list those activities on our website to share with with other people. Mm-hmm. And if any of your listeners have any suggestions for us on how to reach out and how to communicate. And, and to share this stuff with anybody or if they say, oh, you need to communicate through through this blog or whatever, I hope I hope that you tell us about it. Um, we're, we're working um, very hard at trying to get the information out through different media outlets, and uh, we hope that uh, we'll be successful with our work. But uh, I can share with you that uh, uh, today in our mail room there are like uh, – 200 mailing tubes out there that are going out to different uh, uh, media outlets across our nation that are that's talking about the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I said tubes because in our these tubes we have uh, special commemorative posters. And if any of your listeners would like a special commemorative poster, I, I have no problem with even mailing them one as long as the supplies last. So, Bernice, if you'd like a poster, we'd be happy to send you one. Yes, I would like a poster. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Okay. And and to access us, again, um, you can go to our website, and if you forget our website, just Google Homestead National Monument of America, and and, uh, we'll come up on your your, uh, computer screen, and and you can contact us through our website, and we'll be happy to mail you out a, 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 a poster. But you don't need to contact us, Bernice, because I'll, I've got you on the list already. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yep. Well, Mark and Blake, I want to thank both of you for joining us tonight and providing the wealth of information on the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act of 1862. Now, I want all of you to please join my guest, Aaron Dorsey, on December 1st, and eight for a two-part discussion on slave era research. Good night, and thank you again, Mark and Blake. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives, and beyond. 
Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me, not next Thursday, which is Thanksgiving, and happy Thanksgiving to all of you, but December 1st. Good night.